And I remember thinking there, why am I in the army? Why am I fighting in a war? Why am I doing all these things for politicians I don't believe in, policies I don't believe in? What am I prepared to do about this, the destruction of my country? G'day, my name's Anthony James, and welcome to a very special final episode for 2020 of The Regeneration. Haul back through the spread of regenerative agriculture in recent decades, and Alan Savory is there. His global influence is hard to overstate. Here we chat about Alan's extraordinary life and the evolution of his insights that have proved so transformative for so many. Thinking holistically is one thing, but how do we actually manage our lives and societies holistically? And ultimately, how do we engage the institutions that we've come to so distrust to enable regeneration at scale, in whatever our role or walk of life? Far from just in agriculture, but certainly not without it. Alan still believes it's possible, lays down the challenge and proposes how it might be done. This episode marks what would have been the 77th birthday of the bloke who introduced me to systems thinking and living 20 years ago, a man who somehow did find his way in academia, albeit in notably different ways, the late Professor Frank Fisher. I couldn't imagine a more fitting guest to mark the occasion than Alan. And wow, to imagine the three of us around a campfire. Alas, how grateful I am, still going beautifully at age 85, and generously joining me online from his second home in Florida, USA. Here's Alan. G'day, Alan. Thanks a lot for joining me. It's, it's really quite something to be connecting with you directly because I've connected with you so much indirectly through so many people in Australia. Yeah. No, no I've been there uh, quite often. Um, you know, initially I took a, a, the decision to bypass Australia and just concentrate on the two Americas and Africa because I was only one person, you know, trying to do an, an awful lot. And then Bruce Ward rang me once and that got me involved in, with Bruce and Brian Marshall. And uh, then the next thing I went there for a book signing and we were met by over 300 people from every state except Tasmania. Just trained by Bruce and Brian that got things started there. Wow, when was that? Late 80s probably, yeah. Mm. And then you interviewed Terry McCosker, you know, who uh, took over from Stan. And Stan, you know, worked with me for some years. Yeah. He was the government economist on the charter trials. And although all the critics said the trials failed, etc., Stan left his job and came and got a job with me <laughs> consulting. <laughs> for those who don't know, they're the trials that were through the 70s, and we'll sort of come back around to that background uh, as we go. But it's so interesting that he was appointed as sort of this independent arbiter. Yeah. And then he's seen the success without clearly being overly attached to the paradigm from which he'd come and could see what was in front of him and then adjust. And it's similar with Terry, and I'm really struck by these stories, and you too, to a degree, that you having come from the conventional space and being really committed to it. I mean, when Terry first came across the work of you and Stan, he thought it was bullshit, quote unquote. And, yeah. and you too, you were so committed to the ideology, if you like, of the time that it led to your greatest regret in the slaughter of the elephants, which we'll also come to. But the fact that these people, 
yourself and these other people can change, can just see what's in front of them and go, okay, new piece of information, move, as opposed yeah. to being defensive in their positions. It's so instructive. You know, over, over 50 years ago, when the charter trials uh, finished and um, we were having a meeting, there, there was a wiser farmer than me. I never remembered his name, but a group of us were standing in, in Rhodesia and uh, somebody asked me in the group and they said, why are you up against such opposition? And uh, before I could answer, somebody said, well, vested interests. And I thought of ICI, Sibagaygi, you know, the big companies and financial vested interests, because that's what everybody thinks of. And, uh, and I said, no, because to this day, I've never been opposed by any company, corporate vested interest to this day. And uh, when I said no, there was a farmer there who said, Alan, you're wrong. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you're up against the biggest vested interest in the world. And I said, I don't know what that is even. <laughs> what is it? And he said, professional people's egos, biggest vested interest in the world. And I've seen it with the, the academic behavior to my work. It's just academic egos, it's not about science at all. There's so much attached to that, isn't there, around identity and what you've constructed, your place in the pecking order even to risk. I mean, if you have that prism to risk relinquishing it, yeah. I imagine can feel pretty catastrophic even if you're really attached to it. Well, look at what we're going through in America right now with a president who won't yield. And he's been defeated, his every legal challenge has been thrown out and he's just refusing to accept that he's a loser. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> While he may be a sort of extreme manifestation, the fact that that's at play with us at large is really a message for everyone. Yeah. And so your connection to your place, you do a lot of work in now Zimbabwe. Oh, yeah, and I'm there half the year, and I've just been there for eight months lockdown. Oh, you were there for lockdown. I imagine that was good to be there oh, for yeah. lockdown. Yeah. yeah. What's your sense of connection to that place? Well, that's home. I mean, I, that's where I'm most at home, where I'm happiest, in the bush with all the elephants and the lions and the buffalo and the kudu and things around me. I mean, I've got all the game around me. I can sit and literally have my morning tea by my campfire and look at bushbuck and kudu and things as I have my morning tea or my drink in the evening, you know. And where else could I do that? And that's and then I, I actually really like the rural uh, people, the tribal people. Uh, I just, I like them. They're, they're good people. I mean, it sounds bloody wonderful, Alan. So no wonder you love it. But uh, it's so interesting that you, as, as someone who works with pastoralists and farmers, that you're relishing the wild really says so much about how you go about pastoralism and farming. Well, don't, don't forget, I didn't come from that background at all. Don't forget, I was probably more extreme than even the vegans are uh, about livestock. Uh, I was on record as saying I, I was prepared to shoot bloody ranchers because they were literally destroying our country with their livestock. And thankfully, I found out for myself that I was completely wrong and we absolutely had to have the livestock. And so, you know, that 
changed my whole attitude. And that was back in the 50s. Uh, that was in the 60s when I realized we mm. had to have livestock. Uh, in the 50s, I started the uh, really the game ranching movement. I, I've still got, I coined those words, game ranching, to harvest the wild population in situ. And I've still got in my handwritten uh, project to start that in the Banguelo swamps in northern Rhodesia. And I've got uh, Sir Fraser, Frank Fraser Darling's uh, corrections of my English because <laughs> I wanted uh, him to put the project forward because with, he was uh, Britain's or one of the world's top recognized ecologists in those days. And I thought if he put it forward, it would go. Whereas I was a 21 year old kid, you know, uh, but he didn't. He said, I won't take your idea. You have to push it forward. But he corrected my English. <laughs> and I still kept that document. That's yeah. magnificent. So, so, you know, our belief then was if we could get rid of the cattle, we could save the whole situation. But of course, that proved totally wrong, like almost everything I ever believed turned wrong. Mm. You know? Well, there it is again, the ability to be able to shift course and not be so precious about mm. ourselves. So let's follow that thread, Alan, because I mentioned the elephants briefly. That was sort of a pinnacle moment of, I imagine, no less than a personal tragedy for you because you were so committed to the task that what you were observing seemed to call for the mass culling of the megafauna there. Can you run us through briefly what happened and, and how you felt about it at the time? Anthony, that was just one of the awakenings of how wrong I, I was on that issue. And people still are, they're still culling, and that's the way we're going to go. Uh, and I'm still getting abuse for saying like, I'm, I was wrong. It, it's amazing the abuse I still get for it. Really? But that wasn't the only one. There, there was a, a very emotional moment, and I cannot remember, I think it was, it, well, it was certainly before we learned how wrong I was about the elephant culling. Uh, when I was uh, sitting on the banks of the Amzanguani River in the southern part of, of what was then Rhodesia, and uh, the river came down in flood. And, you know, men don't cry, but I just sat there and, and cried my bloody heart out as the river came down, muddy water and trees, and I think a donkey floated by because that was my country. And I remember thinking there, why am I in the army? Why am I, uh, you know, fighting in a war? Why am I doing all these things for politicians I don't believe in, policies I don't believe in? What am I prepared to do about this, the destruction of my country? And at, at that moment, I just, I don't want to be dramatic or anything, but I literally just thought to myself, if I'm prepared to give my life in the war I'm fighting, I'm prepared to give my life for this. And I really made up my mind then that no matter what the opposition, no matter what happened, I would do everything I could to stop that. And that would be my life. You just felt like you had a direct moment of witnessing the destruction of a nation, of a country. And that's now what we know is on the line for all of us, that civilization no less is on the line. And I've been fascinated to hear you speak about how, in a sense, don't worry about the agriculture itself because people have sustained agriculture in a for one form or another 
after civilizations have collapsed, but no one's kept agriculture with civilization, with cities. And that's the challenge that we're faced with. Now, some years ago, Roger Brown uh, here did a, a video of me. It was in the old uh, tape days. And uh, he wanted it to be on sustainable agriculture, but it isn't. I've still got the video and it's titled Sustainable Civilization. And we filmed that on the ruins of the Chacon civilization in New Mexico, here in America. And the point I was making is that we know how to sustain agriculture, but we don't know how to sustain cities. Throughout history, farmers have destroyed more civilizations than armies have done. Armies change them, but farmers destroy them. They never rise again. And I was making these points and saying, if we just abandon the cities, whether we're nomadic, prosperous, we can sustain our families, uh, whether we abandon cities in Yucatan or, you know, uh, tropical uh, jungles, we can sustain small communities. So we've always been able to sustain communities, although we were still doing damage to the environment, but we couldn't sustain cities. And now it's become a global issue. And it, it's, uh, it's tragic to hear the academia, which has moved mostly to cities now, talking about how people in the rural areas who will suffer uh, with climate change and things like that. And I, I keep thinking, you dummies, can't you get it? that the people in the cities are going to die the worst deaths. They're going to have the greatest suffering. The people in the country districts and so on basically still know how to look after themselves, how to grow food. People in the cities can do little more than just work a computer or a cell phone. Or, or you know, they're, they're totally an urban environment now. I doubt any of them could light a fire without matches. Yes, it's ironic, isn't it, that the cities who've become so dependent on being served by the regions yeah. feel like they're the secure ones because, of course, they have usurped we, have usurped the wealth and power. Okay, let's go back and fill in some gaps then around what built to that really incredible moment by the river for you, Alan. You were a bit frustrated at university with the silo disciplines and you'd come out and you're working as a ranger, you started to observe the decay of landscapes, defying conventional wisdom. What was building for you towards that moment by the river? Well, you know, well before the moment by the river, when, when I came out of university, I just wanted to get, uh, I only went to university to get older because of the minimum joining age in the game department uh, was 25. And when I left university, I was still only 20. And, uh, but the colonial office very kindly made an exception and I joined when I was 20, uh, which was the first time. So as far as I know, I was the first uh, new young university graduate professional uh, biologist to join the game department. Now, uh, initially the first part of the first year, they just buggered me around, gave me all the dirty jobs to do and I loved it. So I was sent to hunt, you know, man-eating lions and problem pigs and anything that the older guys didn't want to do, and I, I just loved it. <laughs> um, but as soon as I could, I began to do serious work, and one of the first things was to, to see for myself in wild areas the damage that fire was doing. 
because game management, wildlife management in the national parks today, over 60 years later, is still the same. It's stop poachers and burn the grasslands, burn the savannas to get a green flush of grass for the animals. So they're still doing that today. And that's what we did. And we burnt mile after mile after mile of country as soon as the grass was dry enough to burn. But I was observing that and seeing the soil erosion and what was happening. And so the first paper I published was on that. It was just field observations at that point on the damage that our policies as biologists were doing in future national parks. And uh, I could not get that uh, published at all because it couldn't get past any peers and it mm. still wouldn't get peer reviewed. And so that was my first experience of the peer review process because I was absolutely right, but it couldn't get published. Mm. And now we know, you know, we know much more about it and I, I was spot on. So those observations I was starting to make literally within months of leaving university. And then my career has pretty well been like that all along. Yeah. And then you were at the point where with that view of farmers and livestock and by extension elephants and so forth, that you felt like these animals had to be off country for it to come back. And then in places where that started to happen, it didn't fix things. Yeah, you know, now I'm looking back on it all with hindsight and so on, but initially, you know, elephants were my big passion. I loved hunting elephants, I loved being around elephants, uh, everything. And so I pretty well decided, okay, I'm going to specialize on elephants. And had I done so, I would have been the first person to do that and become an elephant expert. And so, you know, when I was shooting elephants, I was doing stomach content analyses and then I was reporting that, hang on, these animals aren't browsing animals, they're grazing animals. Because I was finding this out from a stomach analysis and all the older guys were saying, no, no, they, they're browsing, they just graze a little bit. And I was saying, hell no, they, they graze, a, I'm finding over 60% mm. of the diet is, is grass. Uh, so, and then as I saw the land damage and, and then had Frank Fraser Darling spend six weeks with me in the northern Luapula provinces of, of what's now Zambia, what was northern Rhodesia. And during that six weeks where we were camped cheek by jowl in the same Land Rover, same walking all the time, and every night talking around the campfire, I was on and on about how our management was worrying me, not the poaching, uh, because of the habitat destruction I was seeing everywhere and habitat is everything. Without habitat, you don't have anything. And um, this was what was really obsessing me with that. Um, and it was at that point, literally very early on, when I decided I've got two paths ahead of me. I can either become an elephant expert, study elephants, etc. But at the end of my life, I won't have done anything to save them. Or I can start to study management, mm. which I had no training for. I was trained just as a biologist, but I can start looking at our management, mm. which is causing the habitat destruction, which will destroy these elephants, whether we stop the poaching or not. And, and I took that path. Now I'm very, very grateful. Now, if I'd taken the other path, I would have had an easier life. I'd have got awards and, 
and you know been a hero and blah 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 but I wouldn't have saved elephants taking the path I did it's been pretty rough <laughs> but I feel good about it because it became much bigger it's become saving humans because human habitat was what we were destroying as well so now my life is no longer about elephants it's now about saving humans but I still love being with the elephants. <laughs> no doubt, yeah. So it's it's humans because we're the custodial species, if you like, too, isn't it? So everything else depends on us at this point. Well, and we depend totally on habitat, which is what our universities can't understand and our scientists can't understand. You know, one of the points I make sometimes is is the things we manage have these unintended consequences. And one of the biggest unintended consequences from a wonderful, well-meant effort is Nobel Prizes. Nobel Prizes, I maintain, have done unbelievable damage to humanity. Now, obviously, I've got to explain that because everybody thinks they're good. When the idea was put forward of having an, a, a big prize for people doing exceptionally well in areas of life that were important to humans, to humanity, the best minds in the world decided on what to give Nobel Prizes for, and you know what they're for. Now, you'll notice that they're for uh, any number of things, but the two things most vital to humanity and civilization, without which you can't have a university, you can't have a choir, you can't have a church, you can't have a space program with the environment and agriculture. And there's no Nobel Prize. Now, what that did, I believe, is it attracted our best minds into the physics, the chemistry, all the technologies. That's where our best minds went. And the guys like me were the guys that sucked time tit, <laughs> weren't very bright. <laughs> went into agricultural environment. So we ended up the dummies, but we ended up working in the most vital area for humanity. So I, I really and truly believe that accidentally it's tragic, but Nobel Prizes have damaged us. It's so interesting. I was, I had a father who was very accomplished and took that lead that you were supposed to do in that era of going into those sciences that you mentioned. In his case, he came out as a father telling me, don't be a mug, go for business. That's where you'll get your dues. You'll make a mint if you apply yourself in business. Same sort of symptom that you're outlining. It's still detached from the base mm. of what's fundamental to a civilization. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we talked earlier about sustainable agriculture, sustainable civilization, but in an interview I did a little while ago by a very nice uh, permaculture guy in Australia, and I made the point at the end of the interview of how permaculture is a great movement, it's wonderful ideas, Bill Mollison and you know others started that, but it's not gone to scale and it'll never go to scale because its institutions don't accept things like that until the public accepts, etc. But at the end of that interview, I made the point that, you know, nothing is sustainable. So when people talk about, because I was asked a question, what did I think about there's somebody who has a website on sustainable business. Yeah, Carol Sanford, I think it was. Yeah, and in effect, I said, that's, that's BS. There is no sustainable business in the world. There cannot be a sustainable business in the world 
until agriculture is truly regenerative. And uh, the, my fear at the moment is everybody's banding the word regenerative. It's becoming regenerative this, regenerative that. Re it's going to become just a buzzword and that's going to be dangerous because regenerative has to regenerate the environment, the oceans, the soils, the rivers, the lakes, the life, the biodiversity, the communities, the economies. And almost nothing we're doing today is doing that. And there's the way of thinking. A point I made uh, a little while ago in, an, in uh, the Maloon talk, I think it was, was that the, the solution which we eventually came to, not, not the solution, but the way to solve it, that we eventually came to, of learning what is causing climate change, desertification, etc., that could never have been discovered in any university. No university could have discovered that because of the discipline approach. It had to be somebody that crossed all disciplines totally in an, not even in an interdisciplinary way, but literally just crossed all disciplines, looking for the clues anywhere, wherever they were. And also, we never could have solved it, I don't believe, in one country. And we certainly couldn't have in Africa, because some of the biggest clues I got were, thank God, because of the war, and then my involvement in politics, uh, trying to end the war, then being forced into exile, and because the whole of Southern Africa was blocking me, I was banned from setting foot on camp, any campus of any university in the whole of Southern Africa. Um, so I virtually had to get out of Africa and work from the Caribbean into the Americas. And that got me into working in North America. And some of the biggest clues were there. They had the research on long established plots, removing all livestock that I showed in the TED talk, that were turning to desert. I mean, it was right there. Mm. They were attributing it to unexplained processes because they just couldn't conceive that conservation could cause biodiversity loss or resting the environment could cause loss of biodiversity in certain environments. They couldn't conceive of that. And then there were also cases like some of the national parks, the Charcoan civilization, where they failed, where you had large national park service managed land worse than anything we had in Africa. Well, there were no elephants to blame, no cattle to blame, no sheep to blame. There was nothing to blame except the management. But they just cannot see it to this day. Mm. So the clues were all over. Now, to, to solve to that issue of rest causing biodiversity loss and to come up with a concept of partial rest where you have animals on the land overgrazing plants, but the land is over-resting, that concept I don't believe we could have developed in Africa because everywhere there are animals. You can't find land without animals. In America, I got to areas of land where it was just like being at sea in my little boat. Just mm. not a sound, not an insect sound, nothing. Just lifeless. And I'd never experienced anything like that in Africa. So when I could get to America, I could begin to find other clues. So this is in the 1980s, and it might be a good time to get a snapshot of what was animating you, the successes that had 
well, partial successes at least. You've, you've talked well about how you continue to learn from mistakes along the way and fill gaps with different influences and experiences. But you were seeing the writing on the wall. Things were changing with the things you were trying to implement. So what was being seen? What, what was animating people? I guess what is a picture of the success that has really emphasised the point here and, and painted a picture of what's possible? Well, what really happened was I brought Stan over to America, got him in, uh, and uh, we partnered. And Stan was a very good trainer and teacher. Mm. And so we ran uh, courses together, training ranchers, and we forced them to come through financial planning before grazing planning. And it was all just financial planning and grazing planning. And then I wanted to help universities, government agencies, um, and Stan wanted to just run a business. So we parted and Stan ran a business and uh, that became the one Terry Koska took over. And it was then, because twice I had brought economists in to work with me, Stan once and previously an economist who had opposed me in a law uh, case, big case in Namibia, and then he had a drink of coffee with me during the case and then joined me in business after the case. That's outstanding. Uh, but anyway, the point uh, I was making was uh, twice I'd had economists with me, but uh, both of them there was a little bit of resistance because they were trained economists. And I was doing a lot of new economic thinking that's outside the, the economic thinking and it's in the holistic financial planning. Uh, that's what enabled farmers to make 300% more profit in one of the university studies or some of that new thinking. And I was finding a little bit of passive resistance there. So once uh, Stan went on his own, I then said, all right, now it's just me. And I brought in new economic thinking. And in fact, then broke through with the holistic framework, which we hadn't had. Um, and... Um, that again came about uh, really by accident, as did the the government training. The government training came about uh, because uh, I had a knock on my door, and it was two fellows from Soil Conservation Service, Ray Margot and Don Sylvester, in in Albuquerque, and they came to see me, and I said, "What's it about?" And they said. We've just been at a field day in Texas and you were torn apart by Texas A&M and University of Texas, etc. And uh, they said there was a question at the end from a farmer that got our attention. And the farmer said, look, all day you've been denigrating Savory and proving him wrong. And he said, my question is, how come when we do what he says, it works. <laughs> and he said these researchers couldn't answer that. And so they came to ask me and I said, well, let me explain it to you. And I explained the thinking I had, etc. And then they said, are you prepared to train us? And I said, yeah, anybody. I, I wonder, we've got to get this out to billions of people. We've got a breakthrough and we've got to get it out. And so that's what led to them coming back about a month later and this USDA uh, group that commissioned me over two years to put the 2,000 people through training. So that was almost accidental. But the, the, the framework that we now 
have to manage holistically um, the with the holistic context, the framework, the tool, the planning, grazing, etc. Um, that came about again by accident, as so many things do. What happened there was at the time I was living in San Angelo, and Jody, my wife, was with me, and. Uh, there was a knock on the door and I went to the door and it was Bob Steger, Professor Steger at Angelo State University. And the, the academics were so antagonistic and, and uh, against me that I was very surprised to see him coming to my home in, in the evening. And I said, well, come in, Bob, come have a beer. What, what is it? What's it about? And he said, well, I've come to see you because we don't know what you're doing. He said, three times you've visited our research uh, station, we've told you what we're doing, shown you what we're doing, and he said, you just tell us what the result's going to be, you don't ask us for the data, and you leave. And he said, each time we ridiculed you, what sort of scientist doesn't even ask for the data? He just tells you what the result's going to be. And he said, so we ridiculed you, but he said, every time, exactly what you predict is what happens. And he said, what are you doing that we don't understand? And so I said, well, let me explain. And I was trying to explain how I was reasoning out complexity in ecological processes, tools, animals, etc. And, you know, I have a habit of grabbing a pencil and paper because I can often sketch things and it helps me or it helps the other person. So I grabbed pencil and paper and I drew ecosystem processes, four of them, and I said, look, these are the four processes by which all environments function. Uh, these are the tools, etc. And I drew lines connecting them. And I said, when you show me your research, I'm looking at the four ecosystem processes. I'm not listening to you and your talk about species. I'm looking at process. And when you tell me what you're doing, I'm thinking tools. What tools are you applying? What like throwing a pebble in a pond, what ripples will it have? What will the tendency of that tool be in this environment? And so when you, by the time you've shown me what you're doing, I can pretty well predict exactly what will happen. And that's what I'm doing. Now, with these lines all over the paper, when Bob left, I'm sure he was as confused, <laughs> if not more. But uh, Jody, my wife, who was observing... It was her. She said, Alan, you need to capture that. Mm. Nobody understands how you're working this out. And so I kept that bit of paper and it became the holistic framework. Because the next time I taught a group of people, I used it. I put it on the board and then I could see what people understood or didn't understand. And I could change it. Mm. And I just kept with people working. And then when the government came to me to train the 2000 people, we were just training two, three groups a month. And so it rapidly developed with, with literally 2,000 people helping me. Wow. And in no time at all, the, the framework had developed, all except for the holistic context. That was the last piece we discovered. It was the hardest piece to discover. All right. So this is how we arrived at the holistic management frame and then holistic context Let's, let's go at the top, where the holistic context piece just fell into place and rounded the thing out. How did that, what was the trigger for that? Um, 
the trigger from that was one guy I was training, he was actually chairman of the Nature Conservancy, and um, we had at the top, because you, you have to be making decisions in an action, and we were always had an action, improve the profit or whatever, like everybody does, meeting our needs, our desires, or solving a problem, and that was the context for our things. And then we had landscape. You, you've got to have a certain landscape. And then we had profitability up there. The, the economic part of it had to be right. And, and then this one guy in training said to me, but you know, surely there should be something more to this. What gets you up out of bed and what gets you excited in life? What's life about? Dummy. Bang. About our lives. And that day, it fell into place. That's beautiful. That night I thought over it. Next day I had it, the holistic context. Beautiful. And in that sense, it relates to everybody. It's not just land managers. And you'll say this to people now, to figure out what your holistic context is, your particular holistic context. Run through that, that sort of universal message that's become now. Well, it's, it, that is the secret of it, and it's absolutely applicable to you, to every human being alive. And I, I sometimes use a simple example, because it's not about land, it's about managing holistically. So let me cover that first. That simply means, like you, Anthony, I don't know you, but I know that you've made 99.9% .9 of the decisions in your life you made them to meet a need, meet a desire, or to address a problem you had. That covers 99.9% .9 of the decisions you made. What was the context? It was the same. The reason for the decision was to meet that need. Do you see? That's with the trap we were in. Yes. So and what we now do is say, no, there are only three things we actually manage. Everything we make or produce. We produce food, we produce fuel, we produce all sorts of things, machinery, space travel, we make or produce. Those, those things are not complex. They're complicated. I, I can't even make a toothbrush. Okay? <laughs> They're complicated. Now, the, the three things we manage are ourselves, our families, our communities, our organizations. We manage humans. We manage environment or nature. And we manage economies. You do not make or produce an economy. You do not make or produce nature environment. You do not make or produce humans, strictly speaking. <laughs> okay, yes. those three we manage, and those are self self. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Self organizing. Self organizing. Yeah. Thank you. Those are self organizing and thus complex by definition. Yes. And those. We cannot do them, even with the most sophisticated, integrated teams of scientists. We cannot do those when the basic decision-making of all humans, that core, ignores that fact. So we have now the, the concept of developing a holistic concept, a context in your life or at a nation, national level or whatever level. And that very simply it's not in any branch of science, religion, or philosophy. It's a totally new concept, but it simply means a statement of how you want your life to be. Not just a string of values, how you want your life to be based on your culture, 
etc. It's very personal. Now, then it has to be your, your environment. What Everything you eat comes from the environment. Everything you throw away goes back to the environment. So even if you're not managing land, it's going back to the environment. It's coming from the environment. So how must the environment be, even if you're not managing land? Well, it's going to have to be clean air, nutritious food, clean soil, you know, etc. Healthy. Okay. It doesn't matter what it's like now. It's what it's got to be like 200 years from now for your descendants to live a life like you want. Now, there's another point of it. You, in your life, have got thousands of people you're dependent on. They're clients, they're suppliers, they're lawyers, they're government people. They're people you depend on or they depend on you. They don't actually make your decisions in your life. But you're so dependent on them, how are you going to have to be for them to be loyal to you? You're judged at the end of the day by your behavior, not your brand, your marketing, your words. You're judged by your behavior. So your holistic context is how you want your life to be, supported by a life-supporting environment that will sustain that life for hundreds of years, and your behavior and how you're going to have to be. That's the holistic context. Now, it gets a little more sophisticated at a national level. Now, when it comes to, to management, Anthony, there's two levels. You and I can choose to ride a bicycle to work, change the bulbs, we can make these decisions. We can make them in our families. We can maybe make them in a small community. There it ends. Management at scale, which is what we have to do to save Australia, to save, yes. stop the megafires, to save the world. Management at scale is only done through organizations or institutions who, that develop policies. And those policies dictate the management. And where we're going today is most of Australia, most of the world is beginning to focus on farmers and individuals and getting them to change. That's good, but that will be incremental change. And we know from the research that'll take another hundred years at least for something like permaculture to become mainstream. If it ever it does in a hundred years, I'd be surprised. Hmm. Right. So if you want something to go mainstream, which we have to do now, you have to address policies. That means government policies. And that's what, I don't know if you listened to the Maloon Memorial Lecture. Yes. That's what I spoke about. Indeed. Now, I don't mind telling you, I'm, I'm bitterly disappointed in Australians. I spent God knows how much time preparing that talk. And you know, I've had zero interest. Is that right? Yeah. Apathy. Total apathy. I thought you Aussies had some guts. Why hasn't somebody discussed that with your Prime Minister? Why haven't thousands of Australians rung up the youth activists in Australia that are demanding action by your government? Why hasn't somebody rung them up and said, look at this talk, there is something you can do? Not one Australian I'm aware of has done that. That's interesting. So the other day, about two weeks ago, I spoke to the Irish community, the Irish politicians, and I'm so far, I'm seeing a better reaction there. So maybe there's more hope in the Irishmen than the Aussies. <laughs> the spirit of the Irish is well and truly alive in Australia. So it's got to come here too. No, that's really interesting because I, I am seeing a bit of press about Ireland sort of across the board. Again, it's, it's a more holistic flavour, which is fascinating. Mm. But let's zero in on Australia while we're there because 
your insight as an MP and president of an opposition party in the 70s in Rhodesia sort of makes you, I don't know, it gives you a point of understanding of what politicians are grappling with. And you brought this to the table with your Maloon presentation at the end with your specific sense of what could be done at this level, that they're not hamstrung. You could find a way to work the politics of the moment to make the holistic management response happen. It's worth running through briefly here. Yeah, what I suggested there, and literally that's what I would do if I was still president of the Rhodesia party, as I once was, I would just carry on government as usual. Politicians can't take risk, so carry on. Uh, Take the advice of your experts on the mega fires and so on, even though it's not going to work, it doesn't matter, carry on. Now, it takes nothing but a little effort to say, well, now, meanwhile, I'm going to form a small committee or body uh, task force to start looking at a policy, agricultural policy, really, it'll be mostly for Australia that will address the mega fires, the climate change, etc. And just that task force begin to develop that policy. Now that can carry on. Um, we would help with it, obviously. I would personally help with it because of the amount of experience I could bring to it. Because we need desperately to get one country in the world to start addressing climate change. There's not a single country yet tackling the cause. And you would then be the first to do that. And that task force would begin to do it. And then people would see how it operates. It would bring in all your best Australian minds, all your experts at the appropriate place, and you would develop a policy that your Prime Minister could then put to the nation or not. And the, the, the worst thing that could happen is you waste a million Aussie dollars and you waste a, a year of time. That's the worst thing could happen. The best thing could happen, you literally cannot put a price to it. You'd be the first country in the world to start addressing climate change, mega fires and desertification. How the hell can you not do it? Yes. I don't understand. And you've said that you would fully expect, once the model's established, if you like, that the dominoes would fall. Look, not a politician in the world knows what to do. Mugabe summed it up in the just in 1980. When he was Prime Minister, our war had just ended, he was trying to govern well, people have forgotten those days, Mm. he'd appointed a white general, General Walls, to command the army, he'd appointed David Smith and a couple of others to his cabinet, and Mugabe made a speech in which he said, we politicians do not know what to do. Wow, he said that in a speech? In a speech he said, we don't have a bigger problem than our deteriorating environment and our rising population. He said, we politicians do not know what to do. The only thing we can do is take the advice of our advisors. But when it goes wrong, we get the blame. Mm. That is true of every politician in the world. And there's not a politician today who knows what to do about climate change or desertification. And I'm offering them a way to see what to do, which can be tried on the side, not approved unless they want to approve it, It's no risk, right? Now, the first government to do that, I predict it'll start a domino effect because every politician doesn't know what to do. But you're acutely aware, and you've sort of alluded to it through our conversation, that that's going to require a push factor, that that is going to require people 
getting involved? Well, it requires enough Aussies who care enough about Australia and the future to just go and see your Prime Minister and say, "What? why don't we do this? If five or six Aussies who care about Australia went and saw your Prime Minister and said that, what's he going to say? If you want to, you could put an interim step in there. You could say, look, if you don't want to do this immediately, why don't you uh, have a meeting with Savory, uh, with your top officials, have a one-day retreat with him and see how it would operate. If they had a one-day retreat like that, they'd see exactly how it would operate and they would do it. I guarantee they would do it because it's just simple common sense. It's not wizardry. Mm. Hold your hat on that. We'll see what we can do. <laughs> so let's get to the cause, though. Let's extrapolate that a little bit. When, when we say the cause of desertification, megafires, climate, all very acute for Australia, but really everywhere now, isn't it? But you know, like you say, there's a, a feeling of being stumped at levels that actually carry the day, what to do about it. When we talk about the cause, we're talking about the way of thinking, that you've spent that those decades coming to on your own path with interweaving with all these other paths we've talked about and more. The cause being our reductionist thinking, our inability to think in terms of holistic contexts, both personally and at a macro scale. You want to elaborate on that a little bit? Alan? Yeah, could I, could I correct you on that? It's yeah, not please. Our thinking. It's not our thinking. Um, there's evidence that past people have thought much more holistically than we do today. Yes. In North America, I'm told there is at least one tribe that used to try and think seven generations ahead, the consequence of any decision. Um, there's lots of evidence that, and, you know, I know it from tracking and working with primitive people, that people have seen their connection to the environment and that we're all one and connected. So we would be arrogant if we thought we're the first to think like that. Mm. And it's, it, it's thinking holistically, taking a holistic approach isn't going to work. It didn't work for them. It hasn't worked for any humans. It's not going to work. That, I'm not being crude here, but it's like taking a pregnancy approach. How do you mean? Pregnant or not. Ah, yes. You know, so it's like pregnancy. You, you've got to manage holistically or you are managing in a reductionist managed way that humans have always managed. So we've actually got to change management. We finally reach the point where denial is over and the majority of the sensible scientists in the world acknowledge that humans are causing climate change. Now, there's only one possible interpretation if we acknowledge that we're causing climate change, then it means management is the cause. There's no other interpretation you can put on that. You can't then say uh, fossil fuels are causing it. No, they're not. You've just said your management is. Your management is how you decide your energy policies. And there are two policies of every government in the world that are destroying humanity the reductionist energy policies, the reductionist agricultural policies. Those two policies urgently need to be developed in a national or a global holistic context. Then young people will have a fighting chance. So not thinking holistically. The decision making. But do it. Yes, yes, you know? exactly. Yes. And we talk about the place of 
First Nations people in Australia, for example, it's you know an extraordinary period of sustenance, tens of thousands of years, but yes, not with cities. So if, if we do want to try and bite off sustaining the picture we've got, not broadly anyway, the city-based culture, if we do want to try and bite that off, then we're looking at adopting these sort of approaches. And, and sort of by illustration, fire is a really good one, I think, because it was so pivotal. I mean, certainly here in Australia, it was so pivotal to the success of those tens of thousands of years of Aboriginal fire stick farming, as it's called, but does have an effect. So here and now might not be the appropriate course in the way that we're doing it with just to address, you know, stopping the wildfires or whatever other particular problem in the moment we think we're solving, but actually considering that it dehydrates land, it does cause emissions and so forth. So you can see how solving one thing bounces along and causes another. So that's an example. It seems to be a real sort of acute current example in Australia and elsewhere where dealing with it holistically, making holistic decisions require a different approach and this is where the livestock fits in or or the megafauna frame as we might think of it in australia the animals that used to be here comes in yeah you know you've got one of the best records of it and you're uh tim flannery uh, you know who wrote the future eaters yes. i mean you need to perhaps interview tim on this because he points out that the pollen record uh, showed that australia was mostly a fire phobic vegetation uh, before the Aborigines and after the Aborigines, it became a fire-dependent vegetation. He points out the big development of your mangrove areas around the coast. Well, what the hell else except silt does that, you know, to get the expansion of those. So you, you've got the knowledge there. You've got people who've written about it. Now, why the Aborigines used fire was because they only had stone tools and fire, technology and fire. That's the same two tools that every nation has today, technology and fire. Uh, the whole, all the climatologists in the world are trying to solve the climate problem with technology and fire. It's not possible. That's what I said in the TED talk. And not a single scientist has told me where I'm wrong. It's terribly important that we listen to it. You know, I, I get, as you see, I, I get frustrated. Mm. There was a delightful fellow here I never worked with him, Jim Tier. I heard about Jim, uh, but he was a professor at Texas A&M. And in the 80s, when I came here, in that first period, I was down on King Ranch with Jim uh, in Texas. And he made a strange statement to me one day. He said, Alan, either you are wrong, and we will not be able to dig a hole deep enough to bury you in. He said, or you are right and the world will not be able to build a monument high enough. And I said, Jim, it's not about me. It's about saving everything. And I said, what do you think? And he said, I'm sitting on the fence. Yeah, right. And Jim died sitting on the fence. And there's thousands of people sitting on the fence. They need to either show where I'm wrong or get off the goddamn fence. Yeah, that's powerful. I hate the idea that we would go out in paralysis, you know, individually well, we are, or, or socially. Yeah. Well, we are. We'll, we'll go tragically because that's our nature. And, you know, when you have 
new discoveries. Um, they uh, are relatively new. The peers discuss them. There's conflict and argument, and then you get awards and so on and so forth. It's periodically in the world, and there have been very few occasions, you've had new discoveries that clash with thousands of years of belief. Now, when that happens, you don't get that. You get condemnation. You get the treatment I've had for over 50 years. I, I, I could go on for half an hour of the things that have been done to me to try to close my business, stop my research, blah, blah, blah. Mm. That, that is normal. All right, so nothing has changed since Galileo, um, Copernicus, the, uh, the fellow who, uh, uh, Semmelweis, who effectively discovered bacteria when people didn't believe anything like that. He died in a mental asylum. Well, thank God I was already insane 50 years ago, so I've survived that one. But you know, when you have new discoveries that fly in the face of human beliefs, then institutions, remember we manage organizations, they're complex. When you form an institution, it takes on a life of its own. An organization takes on a life of its own. No organization behaves like a human being behaves, even though it's full of humans. And organizations are almost incapable of common sense. You and I, any human being can use common sense. An organization that's extremely rare for an organization to be able to. And one of the other, what they call wicked problems, almost impossible to solve, is that organizations always reflect the, the prevailing thinking of society. So you can go into any government department or politicians or doctor's office or anything, and they'll have the latest computers, the latest softwares, the latest cell phones, the, the latest everything, because we believe in technology. Uh, people planted trees, so they gave a Nobel Prize for planting trees in Kenya, okay? Because people believe in planting trees using technology to plant trees. We believe in technology. So you can do anything like that, and even if it's controversial, it'll be accepted. Now, if new thinking emerges, paradigm-shifting thinking emerges, that conflicts with thousands of years of human belief, then institutions lead the ridicule and the rejection. How is it, here we are over 60 years later, how is it not a single cattleman's organization in the world has yet supported me. Thousands of ranchers have supported me. Not one cattleman's organization that I know of has supported me. Most have opposed me. And I'm just picking one example. Environmentalists and cattlemen should have been the first to support me. No environmental organization has ever yet done so, major one. They're, they're just behaving normally when new knowledge emerges that conflicts with beliefs. Yeah. Is that to say, Ellen, in your mind, that it needs more of us to shake off the institutions that we've lost trust in to be able to create a sort of a critical mass where either they change or new ones come about? Uh, no, don't lose trust in institutions. We're describing wicked problems. You have to have them. We can only operate at scale through institutions. Now, the, the wicked problems nobody's been able to solve I don't know, all right? Now I'm getting into speculation. Mm. Everything I've said to you up till now, I would stake my life on it. Now I'm getting into speculation. I 
believe, I do not know, I believe the concept of a holistic context and the holistic framework will overcome this one of institutional stupidity. So what we've got to do is heed the research. The research, mostly I'm, I'm relying on people like uh, Lord Ashby, his research. He looked at how truly new knowledge got into democratic society and he looked at Britain and America as his two case studies over the last 200 years. And essentially, he could have been looking at Australia, it would have been the same. Essentially, what he found was, if it is truly new, like I'm talking to you about, it can never be brought in by your institutions. They will oppose it. Yes. It can only come in when the people in the pub at the cricket field are saying, when are they going to do it? They will do it. That's why I said to you earlier, if just a group of Australians will go and see your Prime Minister, request to see him, and say, we want you to look at something new, he probably will. You can do an intermediary step. That's all it needs, is the public to show that it is wanted. Institutions are close to change. We've got branches of some of the big environmental organisations actively cooperating, collaborating with the Savory Institute. Not the whole institution yet. The fighting's gone internal, but whole branches of institutions are beginning to collaborate with us. So the change is very, very close. Yeah, that's interesting, Alan. Your perspective over a lifetime of that broad arc of change, and you believe it's possible. It is possible. You could bring it about. That's beautiful. You've got enough following in Australia that you could bring it about. It just depends, do you care enough? If you care as much as I did when I cried my heart out on the Mzungwani, you will bring it about, Anthony. Yeah, I feel that, Alan. I um, I really feel that. Yeah. Yeah. But people have often asked me, you know, what's kept me going against such opposition, incredible opposition, for so many years? Yes. And, and I, I have thought about that question deeply because I've been asked it so often. And I answer it with one word, care. If you care enough about Australia, you will do whatever you have to do. And so I'm putting that to you now. You've got an audience. You're a known person. You're an extremely good uh, facilitator. I hear that. Listen to it. You've got the capability. Do you care enough? I did note you said that. And it's something that... Nora Bateson, who's another sort of key figure, influence, uh, person I admire. In fact, the podcast I had with her, I titled Solve Everything at Once because she used that catchphrase in another podcast that I heard her in. And I almost feel like this is Solve Everything at Once, you know, Mark Two. <laughs> but she comes to the same thing. She says, at the bottom of, of it all is, do you care enough? Yeah, that's interesting. Somebody else should come to that, but I do. And when you say solve it all, I, I think I, I hate, you know, the one solution or anything. And, and I don't have a solution or the solution. All I have is a way for people now to solve it. That I would stake my life on. This is a way for Australia now to start solving the problems. You can either continue with reductionist policies and management, or you can start to manage and develop policies holistically. It's a path ahead of you. Alan, to wind us up, what place would you say over the journey that 
I, I see you mention it in some of your writing, gut feel, an intuitive base to guide you in life. To what extent would you say that's been present for you and, and is a value? Well, I don't know. I, it, it has saved me in some dangerous situations. Really? Because I've, you know, I've lived more than nine lives. Yes, with, I imagine. With, uh, you know, parachuting accidents and been shot twice. And I've had, you know, close shaves with elephants, lions, buffalo, hippo, you name it. Um, and there have been times where the sheer intuition saved me. Uh, but in the work, it's mostly been just lots of thought, thought, observation, deduction, reasoning, and, and, and people, other people talking with them, discussions around campfires. And the best ones where we've done the most learning, we've always, those of us that were present, have always said we never could have set this up. They always happen. Like I mentioned to you, the two guys visiting me saying we've been to this field day in Texas, it just happened. Like Bob Steger walking in and saying, what the hell are you doing? You've been to our research station. <laughs> it just happened. You, know, you can't set them up. So I'm, I'm very alert to that. And when I was training a lot of people, often end of the day, we'd all be tired and somebody would ask what seemed a stupid question and you could feel the groan around the room or somebody would say oh for god's sake shut up you know and i would say hang on and i would listen you know because i'm very attuned to that and often it's a side remark or something i'll pick up that gives me a clue or or it's the subconscious. So something is going on all day and I will have a sleepless night or I'll wake in the night and I'm half asleep and man, I'm thinking clearly differently. And if I, I try to get in the habit of having a pad and a pencil by the bed, because sometimes in the morning I absolutely cannot get it again. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah so I don't know what goes on. We, we're no. complex. Indeed. <laughs> I'm just a simple, simple guy. And I <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's fascinating, though, when you think about I, it sort of emphasizes the point. Yeah, don't go out in paralysis to actually just get involved mm. and see what happens. Yeah, and, and not get heated. I'm, I'm one thing I've been very lucky with is I, I don't get angry. It's, it takes a tremendous lot to make me angry. I never ever lose my temper, so the the worse things get, or the the calmer I get, the more dangerous it gets. The calmer I get, and the worse the conflict gets, the calmer I get. And I just wish we could all just be calm, because so often, if you can just stay calm, you can reason and talk to people. Because you know, at the end of the day, most people are good. Most people are doing their best. We just get into these conflicts over management. Mm. That's what leads to conflict. And I, I've been with, with uh, one group I often talk about where they told me to bugger off back to Africa. It was impossible to have agreement in their community. It was an angry community in America. It was just after the uh, Timothy McVeigh bombing mm. of a government building. There was a tremendous lot of anger. And this group of about 35 men literally told me to F off back to Africa. And finally, I said, 
gentlemen, let's stop this meeting. And they applauded. And then I said, just you tell me it's impossible to have agreement. Will you work with me for one hour and prove me wrong rather than telling me wrong? And then we just part. So they literally having applauded closing the meeting, they agreed to work for one hour and just prove me wrong. And all I did was I couldn't ask that bunch of men to talk about love, caring, family. They would have ridiculed me even more. They had big belt buckles, cowboy boots, hot bellies, you know. Um, and, and I just gave out sheets of paper and said, I want you to be totally selfish. I'm giving you 10 minutes, whatever it was, I gave them a set time. I want you to be totally selfish. Think only of yourself. Write on this piece of paper what you would like to see in this community 20 years from now after you're dead. You know, 100 years from now. You're all going to be yeah. dead within 20 years. I want you to write, if you could come back 100 years from now, what would you want to see? And when I collected those bits of paper, you couldn't distinguish civil servant, farmer, bureaucrat, townsman. You couldn't distinguish. They all identical. The whole atmosphere changed. We developed a holistic context. Whole thing. Yeah. Alan, amazing. What What were some of the themes? Do you recall that were universal? They all wanted to see a flight of geese over their homes. Yeah. They wanted to share the good neighbourhood around a barbecue. It, it was exactly the same things. The same culture, way of life. They wanted to see. So now I had what was important to them in life. And then I could say, look out the window, look at that land and the condition that's in, because it was terrible. I said, a hundred years from now, your kids are going to be killing each other. They're not even going to get there. And we, so we just carried on with agreement. Yeah. Outstanding. It's certainly something I've admired from afar, Alan. Your, I don't know, fierce might even be the word, fierce spirit, but mild-mannered engagement and obviously very articulate and considered. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to engage in this conversation with you directly. Thanks well, a lot. Thank no, thank you, because you just helped to get the word out. I, I love Australia, despite my comments about Aussies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we appreciate a jab now and then. Aussies and revisions, you know, it's like if... It's like brothers. We'll fight, but if somebody if somebody tackles you, I tackle them. Right on. But when somebody else isn't attacking you, I will. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. To take us out, I actually ask a guest before we leave to nominate a piece of music that's been significant in their lives. What comes to your mind? Uh, I, I, I had a Scottish mother, so I'm always, it's bagpipes or, you know, Scotland the Brave. or Really? <laughs> Yeah, or, you know, farewell 51st or... <laughs> ha, that's yeah. great. I was very much uh, Scottish, I'm afraid. My mother was such a proud Scot. Was that a good connection? I know you grew up, you relished your upbringing connecting to the wild. Was family a sort of key part of that for you as well? Uh, no, I, I had uh, great difficulties early. I, I was a cripple, I was a polio you? victim, I was very small. Uh, and then, uh, tragically, my mother became alcoholic during the war. You know, the Second World War was on. Both my parents were in the army. And by the end of it, she was alcoholic. When my father came back from North Africa, I didn't even know who he was. Wow. And it was, it was the hard years, the early years. Yeah. Was, in yeah. that sense, was the wild a portal to something rich and enlivening for you? 
you know, my earliest ambitions were typical of kids in those days. I just wanted to be a rear gunner in a bomber. Mm. But um, once the war was over, then I wanted to be a poultry farmer. I loved chickens. I loved animals. And then, uh, you know, later I, I got into the bush more and more and more. Yeah, mm. there's that love and care at play right there. Alan, thanks once again. I do hope we meet in person one day, but but this has been very special. Thank you very much. I hope we meet. And if you ever want to come to the Victoria Falls, if you ever want to come to Dibangombi, we'll put out the red carpet. We'll make you welcome. Cheers, Alan. Okay, meanwhile, get Australia going. Yes, okay. indeed. <laughs> See you. Thank you. Thank you. That was the legendary Alan Savory. For more on Alan, his books, the Savory Institute and its growing global network, including the Africa Centre for Holistic Management, see the links in our program details. And you can hear more of our conversation in a special extra to this episode, coming soon. I was happy to source this rendition of Scotland the Brave by Eric M. Armour. It was from the Free Music Archive. And for your mother, Alan... Special thanks to every one of the generous donors, supporters and partners of the podcast for keeping the show going through its fourth year. It couldn't happen without you, and doing it with you makes it so rich and uplifting. An enormous thank you to Susie, Jack, Matt and Tim this week for your extremely generous donation. It's just brilliant to feel there's such a sound platform for this podcast to persist in 2021. And I'm really looking forward to sharing the journey with you next year. Of course, if you're able to join these folk in supporting the podcast, you can do so via the website in the show notes, regeneration.com. Thanks for all your support, and as ever, for sharing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. I'm humbled to be able to say again this year that listenership and support for the podcast have continued to grow, along with the wonderful conversations and sense of meaning we've shared. I'm so very grateful for this, and I'm relishing the brilliant connections and outcomes emerging from it all. I'll leave you with an uncanny snapshot from what is still the most played episode on this podcast. I only happened on this recently when asked to put together a highlights reel of sorts for the podcast. This is from episode 37 with Nora Bateson, recorded in February 2019, well ahead of what became 2020. Well, I mean, in my little fantasy there's a great big pause button and we can just say hold on stop everything and let's regroup and and turn this titanic around that's probably not going to happen but one way or another the systems that we are within and of are going to change one way or another so either we make hard choices under duress or we start to recognize that some of the stuff that we think we need and want we don't and we begin to choose another way of being i'm taking a little break over the new year period to be on country with family and to absorb and revisit what's felt like an extraordinary year of conversations and learning in an extraordinary year in general i'm looking forward to sharing your company again next year as we seek to seize the moment and regenerate the systems and stories we live by. 
Our customary highlights package for the year will be with you in a week or so. But as this will be the final word you'll hear from me, I'd like to wish you all the very best for a wonderful festive season and a regenerative new year. The music you're hearing is Far Away Castle by Ray Howell and Sunray. My name's Anthony James. Thanks for listening. <laughs>